Psalm 37 uh, definitely has a few of those verses that you're probably like, oh, that's, that's one of my favorites, or it's, it's a verse I've seen before. There's some real famous stuff in Psalm 37, um, but it is 40 verses long. It's a lengthy psalm. There's a lot here. And so I'm going to really try to help us to understand today the big idea, the big picture of what David is trying to communicate in Psalm 37. This is a particular type of psalm. You could call it an instructional poem. And it's interesting because I don't know if you picked up on this, but when you read Psalm 37, in a lot of ways, it reads more like, a, like the Proverbs than many of the Psalms. It kind of feels proverbial with a lot of the wisdom and what seems to be sort of disjointed thoughts and ideas that come together in this chapter, in this poem. It's an instructional Psalm. It's meant to guide us in the way of righteousness, guide us in the way of the Lord. You'll notice in the psalm that David is writing this from an older perspective. He's mature. He's advanced in years. He tells us that much in verse 25. And as an older man, what David is doing here is he's providing wisdom. He's trying to guide or instruct, presumably, the future generations in Israel that are underneath him. And so he's an instructor. He's a professor, if you will. He's a teacher of the law, wisdom teacher in Psalm 37. And the question, of course, is, well, what's the lesson for today? What what is he talking about in Psalm 37? Well, simply put, the overall lesson is this, don't worry when the wicked prosper. So on the whiteboard, Professor David gets up there and writes that as the title, don't worry when the wicked prosper. And that is our sermon title today. Old Testament commentator Beth Tanner writes this as a summary of Psalm 37. She says this, Psalm 37 reminds those hearing it to hold fast, even in the face of a world where the wicked seem to do better than the faithful. That's what it is. It's a summons. It's a call to us who who trust in the Lord to hold fast, even while we live in a world where it seems that the wicked are doing better than the faithful. And that really is one of the great enigmas of the Christian life, isn't it? That we live in a world right now where from all that we can see as we're observing things, we're looking and we're going, why is it that the wicked or people who don't honor God, people who, like we talked about last week, don't fear the Lord, they seem to be prospering. They seem to be doing better. And then on the flip side, so often those who love God, those who are trying to live righteously are struggling. Last week, we learned that God's justice is like the great deep. That's in Psalm 36, 6. And I talked last week about how that means that God's justice in the world is mysterious. God's justice in the world is impossible to fully comprehend or completely fathom. Sometimes the world appears to be anything but just. We look at the world and we say, well, if God is just, then why aren't the wicked getting what they deserve? And if God is just, why aren't the righteous getting what they deserve? Well, part of the answer to that question is in the next part of that very same verse, Psalm 36, 6, where David there writes, man and beast, you save, O Lord. Imagine just for a moment, if God had a zero tolerance policy for wickedness. You sin, you die. Zero tolerance. One transgression. You break my law, game over. Justice comes down. How many people would be saved? 
Universal sign for zero, right? Zero, nobody. If Adam and Eve had sinned in the garden and God exacted justice instantaneously, game over. You die, you don't pass go, and you don't collect $200. You go straight to hell, not jail. That would be it. But God is a God who saves. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. And so here and now, we live at a time after man's sin and before the final judgment, right? It's after sin, but before the final judgment. So we live in a world where justice is sometimes meted out and oftentimes suspended until a future date. But David wants us, the people of God, the sheep of his pasture, to learn to live in patient, resilient faith, trusting God no matter what and waiting for the day when justice fills the entire earth. Because in that day, we will truly speak the words of verse 16, better is the righteous. Now, this is another one of the acrostic psalms. We've talked about that as well. But basically, each section begins with one of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And so one way to organize Psalm 37 is to break it into 22 parts, the number of letters in the Hebrew alphabet. But I'm confident you guys don't want to sit through a 22-point sermon any more than I want to preach a 22-point sermon. So maybe we can do better. I found in the New International Commentary on the Old Testament a really helpful way of breaking up Psalm 37 into five parts. That's a lot more manageable, right? Five parts. So let me put it on the screen for you. Here's how we're going to organize these 40 verses. Verses 1 through 11, do not worry about the wicked. Verses 12 through 15, the wicked and their fate. Verses 16 through 26, David's going to argue, you know what, better are the righteous. And then in 27 through 31, he's going to give some advice for the righteous. And then finally in 32 through 40, he's going to argue that God will help the righteous. So let's take these in order. David's going to begin in this first chunk of scripture, 1 through 11, telling us as God's people, do not worry about the wicked. Look at verse 1. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. Yesterday, our nation marked the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And that's a very sobering reminder of the fact that you and I live in a world where evil exists pure evil, terrible evil. What happened on 9-11 was pure evil. It was pure wickedness. People who had no regard for human life, innocent human life, men, women, and children just going about a workday, perishing in a terrorist attack. We live in a world where evil exists. We live in a world that is stressful and scary and it's particularly stressful and scary when wicked people are in positions of authority and positions of power, which is the context of Psalm 37. Now, the first three words here could be the entire sermon. David writes, fret not yourselves. Now, as a kid in church, when I'd hear a pastor say something like that, I would always think to myself, well, why don't you just let it be then? Do you really have to waste another 35 minutes? Just say, fret not yourselves and let us all go home, pastor. And I thought about letting you do that today, but I'm not going to. So you've got 35 more minutes. 
Today, with all of the worry and all of the concern that so many people are facing, God wants to speak to your heart. God wants to speak to our heart as his children. And he just wants to say to all of us today, in all of your anxiety, all of your fear, all of your concern, he wants to say, fret not yourselves. Don't worry. Don't be consumed by it. Don't be overwhelmed by it. Now, fret not can be translated, let not your anger burn. And so the idea here is, is definitely don't worry, but it actually goes a little further than that. It's don't worry so much that you allow yourself to be consumed with what's going on with the wicked, with the fact that wicked people get away seemingly with wickedness. Don't be so consumed with that, that frustration and anger and resentment begin to bubble up inside of your, your heart because that's not the way to live. That's going to be toxic as we'll see in a moment. So he says, listen, don't let your anger burn. Don't be consumed with worry. And this is so easy to do. Look at verse 7 really quick. In Psalm 37, 7, we learned that the wicked here in this chapter are prosperous. Okay, they're wealthy. Everything is going great for the wicked in Psalm 37. And when, again, when you see wicked people, when you see people who are bent on oppressing others or taking advantage of others or people who have no regard for God, when you see them doing really, really well and you focus on that, it's really easy to get upset. It's really easy to get consumed by that and it's really easy to get angry about that. Because again, it seems like an assault on justice. So he says, don't worry about the wicked. But he also says, don't envy the wicked in verse 1. There's really two temptations here. When wicked people are prospering, when they're the ones in control, when they're the ones in power, you can get mad and you can be consumed with it, or you can get jealous and you can become envious of it. After all, they have all of the things. They have Again, the power, they have the wealth, they have the control, they have all of these things. And if you don't guard your heart, you can just be envious of them and say, I want those very same things. And sometimes people are tempted to follow in their footsteps because they're envious. Now, David's going to tell us why we don't need to worry about them, why we don't need to envy them. In verse 2, he says, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Now, Israel has a similar climate to us here in Southern California, very similar. And in Israel, just like here in Southern California, after the rainy season, tons and tons of wild grass just spreads all over the hillsides. Right across the street from the church, we have that hillside of the old cemetery there. And after the rainy season, sure enough, there is grass, natural grass that grows this high over there. Green Beautiful, looks healthy, but guess what? The moment that the scorching heat comes out, it's gone. In fact, some of you on this far side could see the hill over there. It's all brown right now. It's all dead right now. And David says, let that be a picture for you of the fate of the wicked. Their prosperity is short-lived. It's here for a moment, and yeah, it looks great. The grass looks greener on the other side, but guess what? It's going to get scorched. It's, it's only going to last for a moment. And then everything that they have will come crashing down. And so in verses 3 through 8, David wants to offer us an alternative way to live. Look at verse 3 again. David says, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. 
Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your, your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. I love this. David's saying, don't be consumed by the wicked. Don't be bothered by that. Don't be envious of that. Instead, orient your heart, orient your mind, orient your very life around God himself. I mean, look at this. He says, trust in the Lord. Delight in the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. Be still before the Lord. He's calling you to a life of complete devotion to the Lord, a life where you are preoccupied with God and with his ways and with righteousness in the world. And where you're not just thinking about these things, but he also says in verse three, not just trust in the Lord, but do good. You're practicing these things. You're embodying the way of God instead of the way of the world. The best way to free yourself from anxiety, anger, or envy over all that's wrong in the world is to look up. It's to look up. It's to have your heart and your mind oriented constantly with the reality of God and who he is, the fact that he's in control, the fact that he's with you as a father. That's the best way to free yourself from anxiety and anger and envy. Some of us would do well to take a break from news media. Some of us would do well to take a step back with social media. We sit and we just consume ourselves over and over again. Then we wonder why we fret. We wonder why we're so stressed. We wonder why our hearts are growing in frustration and bitterness about what's going on in the world. We need to orient ourselves in the reality of who God is. And like we talked about, in the reality of God's love for his people and his care for his people. Now I'm going to comment on a couple things here and we're going to move on, but Notice the expression in verse three, he says, dwell in the land. He wants them to dwell in the land. I bring that up because I don't know if you caught this, but land or the land comes up constantly through Psalm 37. You see it in verse three, nine, 11, 22, 29, and 34. For the Israelites, uh, the land, meaning the promised land, was very significant because the land equaled God's promises fulfilled and God's blessings received. God had promised his people, as you make me your God, as you follow me with all of your heart, as you trust in me, I am going to bless you in this particular land. And if you don't, I won't. And you're going to be expelled from this land. So the land becomes symbolic of God's blessing on his people and God's promises being fulfilled to his people. The land was incredibly important to the Jews. And evidently there was this temptation here for them to flee the land because the wicked were in control. And David says, no, 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 don't do that. Trust God and dwell in the land. Just be patient. God's going to expel the wicked people and God is going to bless the righteous in the land, thus delivering on his promises. Now, verse four, of course, is popular and it's loved. And it's also a verse that's often taken out of context. There's a handful of Bible verses that have been so abused. Verses that probably need therapy. 
because so many people take those verses and just abuse them. Psalm 37.4 is one of those verses. Pray for Psalm 37.4. Some people look at this and they go, okay, hold on. This is almost like a license to make the Christian God my genie. All I got to do is kind of just delight in him or whatever that means. And then he'll give me what I want. And so they already have all these kind of fleshly, worldly desires built up in their heart. And it's like, everything I'm trying to do in my life is not getting me a Lamborghini. Maybe I'll try Jesus. And I'll go that route. And then he's going to give me what's in my heart. And so they, they want to look again, kind of at the Christian God as almost their own personal genie. The other ones they tried didn't work. Maybe this is how I can get what I want out of the world. Totally wrong way of understanding. Notice the context that verse four is set in. It's set into a context of a person whose life is committed to the Lord and the ways of the Lord at every level. They trust in the Lord. They delight in the Lord. They commit their way to the Lord. They are patiently waiting on the Lord. It's a person who has learned to pray the way Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. In Matthew 6, 9, and 10, Jesus says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's the person who is saying like Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. Notice that Jesus' deepest desires, his will at its deepest level was, I want what you want, whatever God wants. And a person who delights himself in the Lord, the person who orients their entire being around God, is the person who ultimately says, I just want what you want. And when that's where your heart is, you can trust that God is going to gladly give you every desire of your heart. He's going to give you what you want because it's exactly what he wants. In verse 7, we have this strong admonition, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Now, this is one of the most important skills of the Christian life and one of the greatest struggles of most Christians. To be patient, to wait for God's timing and not act on our own time frame. We need to learn to play the long game. We need to learn the art of delayed gratification if we hope to appropriate the message of Psalm 37. And delayed gratification is something that we do not practice well. And all God's people said, amen. Like a lot of us, we think the microwave takes too long. We got problems. We get frustrated if we get moved onto a public Wi-Fi and it's a little bit slow. Guys, take a trip down memory lane. Some of us need to reflect on something called dial-up. Do you remember that? And the horrendous sound that it would make? We can't tolerate an 8% annual yield in a mutual fund when we have friends who are making 50, 100, or 200% in crypto. Like, like we need it now. I need instant gratification. These things are taking too long. And the problem with this is, is when you live that way and you live for the short game, you're, you're much more susceptible to giving into the temptation of wanting to be like the wicked, to get the, the quick success of the wicked. And David's warning against it over and over again. In verse 8, he, did, he wants to warn us that if we don't heed the instruction of verse 1 and verse 2, our frustration is going to tend only to evil. 
there's a progression that when we're consumed with it, we're worrying about it, we're letting the anger boil up inside of us, ultimately it's going to produce words and actions that themselves are evil. It's going to sour your own heart before the Lord. And David's saying, don't, don't do that. Don't go that way. We don't have to worry. We don't have to go there. Because in 9 and 10, we read this again. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. Oh, for God to give us an eternal perspective. That we would, we would be people who can play the long game. Who don't get caught up with what's going on in the here and now, but we just trust the Lord. Because in verse 11, the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. So those who restrain anger, those who trust in the Lord, are going to inherit the land. God is going to deliver on his promises. God is going to set all that was wrong in Israel right. Now Jesus, of course, takes the teaching of verse 11 and he expands it in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, 5, Jesus quotes this. He says, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit thee. And then he makes a twist. He says the earth instead of the land. In Christ, no longer is the promise restricted to inhabiting a strip of land in the Middle East, but the inheritance of those who trust in Jesus and like him embody meekness is the whole world. God will deliver on all of his promises and God will set all that is wrong right now in the world right. So we need to be patient. Okay, section two. Now don't freak out. Section one is the longest of this sermon, okay? The next four are going to come much quicker. I've done the heavy lifting already. Section two, verses 12 through 15, the wicked and their fate. David continues, the wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. Now, the picture that I got as I was reading verses 12 and 13 this week was the picture of playing a strategy game with kids, like chess or checkers or settlers of Catan or something. But, you know, as an adult, you're sitting there and you're playing with young children and you've got that game going and they're plotting and they're strategizing about how to beat you. And, and you're watching and you almost kind of are laughing to yourself because you know exactly what they're trying to do. And you totally know how you could beat them at any point that you want to but you kind of go along with it and you kind of just watch it happen. Even the most powerful who oppose the Lord, even those with all the cards in their hands, even those who feel invincible and have all of the control and are doing all that they can to manipulate things in the world for their own evil interests, God looks down from heaven and he just laughs. It's just humorous to him that they think that they can get away with something that they think that they can outsmart God. It's not going to happen. In fact, in 14 and 15, he even says, listen, they're getting their weapons ready. They think that they're, that they're going to be able to destroy the poor, destroy the vulnerable, destroy the people who's God, who, who have God's heart. And God just says it's not going to happen. Their own ideas, their own plans are going to come back on themselves and God's going to foil all of it. This is the fate of the wicked. It will come to nothing. And so in verse 16, David shifts gears. This is section three. Better are the righteous 
Verse 16, better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. Think about this. David is saying that those who are righteous, but who were being oppressed and who had very little, he's saying it is far better to be you than to be many wicked who have an abundance. So he's like, you can just kind of line up a group of the wicked people with all of their mansions. Because again, these are people who were in positions of power and wealth and prosperity in Israel at the time. Just kind of line up all their mansions, all their sports cars, all their yachts, all of their titles, all of their corporations, all of their overseas bank accounts. Line all of that up and then look at you with your little shack. Okay, in your tiny little garden because you guys are organic and you're doing your own thing and your little animals. And realize that you are far, far, far better off than they are. It's amazing. It's an amazing perspective. That these people that are being oppressed, these people that are living without, David is able to say, you are so far better off than the wicked who are prosperous. Why? Because the arms of the wicked will be broken, he says. Think about the arms. The arms are the very means by which they acquire wealth and the very means by which they hold on to their wealth. And God says their arms are going to be broken. They're going to lose it all. They're not going to be able to hold on to it because I will oppose them. How many homes and businesses and fortunes do you think were completely upended last month in Afghanistan? Or last year in the United States and around the world through a pandemic. So many instantaneously, seemingly overnight. And friends, listen, that has happened thousands of times throughout human history. Everything that's going on in your life right now can change in an instant. And so David is saying, look, it, it appears that they've got it all going on right now. And again, you could be worried about it. You could be frustrated about it. You could be envious of these people that are taking advantage of others and seem like they're getting away with it. Or you can just trust the Lord, you can live righteously, and you can trust that I will take care of everything. Better is the righteous who has little. It's better to be righteous and know that God is on your side than to be wealthy and powerful and have God against you. And that's exactly what 18 and 20 teach us. The Lord knows the days of the blameless and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke, they vanish away. Now, of course, the issue here is not one of somebody having money and somebody else not. It's an issue of their orientation of heart. The wicked here, again, are not just wealthy. That's not the issue. They're oppressive and they're evil and they're destructive. And the righteous here are being oppressed. But David points out that the Lord knows the days of the blameless. God is intimately aware of what's going on. He's concerned with those whose hearts are before him. And although they're living through evil times, as he puts it, they will not be put to shame. He says, in the days of famine, they will have abundance. You can't help but think of Joseph's story in the book of Genesis that Joseph was taken to Egypt, the dominant empire at that time. And the Egyptians were pagans. They didn't worship Yahweh. They didn't worship the God of Abraham. 
And Joseph's taken there and he is abused in multiple ways and he's falsely accused of things and he's imprisoned. And it looks like the wicked are getting away with it and the righteous are rotting in a, in a jail cell. And yet God, through a great reversal, raises up Joseph and he becomes prime minister in Egypt and God gives him supernatural wisdom and foresight to store up grain for a great famine that would sweep through all of the land. And Joseph is preserved, and Joseph's family and thus the people of God are preserved through this. It's amazing. Even in the midst of a famine, God gave abundance to Joseph and to his people through Joseph. But not so for the enemies of the Lord. David says, like smoke, they're going to vanish away. Think about your breath on a really cold day. This is just a different metaphor for the same point. Just like the grass comes up and then it goes away, the smoke comes out for a moment and it vanishes. And he says, that's going to be the reality for those whose hearts are turned against the Lord. Now in verse 21, there's a contrast here between how the wicked and how the righteous handle their money. He says, the wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. The wicked here are pictured as those who are stealing and cheating. Like, hey, can I borrow some money from you and I'll pay you back? And then they just don't. They don't have to. They're in control. Nobody's going to stop them. And yet the righteous here is the generous one who gives. Now you got to think about this again. Think about the context. The wicked in Psalm 37 have all the resources. They're rich. They're wealthy. And yet they're still greedy. They're still abusive and taking advantage of the poor to get richer. And the righteous in Psalm 37 are broke. They hardly have anything. They're poor. They're being abused and taken advantage of. And even though they're poor, they're generous and they give. I love that. And it reminds us of a very important point. How you handle your money has almost nothing to do with how much you have and everything to do with your character. Oftentimes, poor people are the most generous people. In fact, Jesus has a whole teaching about the woman who gave away her two pennies in the temple. And that was the point he made. That out of her poverty, she gave everything she had. And yet rich people were walking in and dumping in these large sums. But relative to their wealth, it was almost nothing. And Jesus commends her generosity. And oftentimes, poor people are the most generous because they don't have to try to figure out how to empathize with others who are suffering. They're in it themselves. And they know what it feels like and they want to alleviate suffering. Rich people, wealthy people have to do some serious work to figure out what it feels like and to actually empathize with those who are poor. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul talks about the poverty of the Corinthian churches. Even though they were so poor, he commends them for their generosity. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. They heard about suffering Christians in Jerusalem and they said, well, what do we have? Not much. Let's take it all and give it to them. And Paul's like, this is incredible. I need to commend this. They were generous with the little that they have. And so we have to ask ourselves, like, where does that kind of radical generosity come from? How do people live like that? I want to read for you a prayer from Tim Keller in his devotional on Psalm, the book of Psalms. He writes this, and I quote, Lord, it is difficult for me to trust in your provision for me enough 
to be radically generous with my money. But if Jesus had been as grudging with his life and blood as I am with my money, then where would I be? Make me a joyful giver. Amen. This is how Christians have always been generous, even in their poverty. They recognize, as Paul says later there in in Corinthians, that Jesus, for your sake, although he was rich, he became poor to make many who are poor rich. Jesus left the glories of heaven. He became a man. He dwelt among us. He lived literally a life of poverty, a life without, dependent on the, the generosity and the charity of others, oftentimes women. And he died a criminal's death in our place. All of that to reverse the values of this world's system and the kingdoms of this world and all of that for your salvation. To make those of us who were bankrupt spiritually before God eternally rich in Christ. And that moves us to say, man, it's not about how much I can amass here. It's about sharing the heart of Jesus and being a generous person. David writes in verse 23, The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Simply put, David says, God sustains, preserves, and provides for his own. In 24, rather, in 25, David points out that the righteous do struggle, the righteous do fall, but ultimately God will protect them from total ruin. Now notice this, that David here is writing as an older man in verse 25, and he's offering wisdom to the next generation from his really, really long perspective on life. And I bring this up because this is one of the greatest ministries and gifts that the older folks in our church family and in our own families can offer to us. Sometimes as I talk to some of the older folks in our church, they feel a sense of frustration that they can no longer kind of jump in with their hands and help do things and come to work days and demo days and things like that. And there's, there's a legitimacy to that frustration. But I want to encourage you that if you are an older person, if you're a senior in this congregation, we don't need that half as bad as we need you to speak into our lives. We've got young people here who can do demo days and remove trash and pull weeds and paint walls. What, what young people can't do is they can't sit with other young people and say, hey, I once was young and now I'm older and I have seen this. Never has the righteous been forsaken by God. Like you have a perspective that we just can't get. We don't have it. We're not there yet. And we can fret when things are going wrong in our lives right now because we don't have that long-term perspective. And you can sit down and you can speak into our lives and say, hey, fret not yourselves. It's going to be okay. I lived through this and this and this happened to me. This was in my family. We had this recession we went through and guess what? We're still standing. God is still faithful. That's the gift that older people can pass on. That's the ministry. So if you're a senior in this church family, be in a small group, speak into our lives, invite a younger couple into your home, take a young man or a young woman woman to coffee in this church and sit down and talk to them and invest in us. And if you're a younger person in this church, don't be so stupid to write off the wisdom of the older people. 
They can teach us so much and they can strengthen our faith in ways that we can never strengthen one another. I love how the righteous person's life is pictured here as generous and kind. It's bubbling over. The wicked, even though they have so much, they're just trying to get more and it's all inward focused. But the righteous person, their life is just this blessing that spills over onto everyone else. In fact, even the righteous person's children become a blessing after them. There's this generational impact here. So better are the righteous indeed. Section four here, advice for the righteous. Now he's going to instruct us in how to live. Starting in verse 27, turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. So David says, look, it's better to be righteous. So here's what it looks like. Turn away from evil and do good. Isn't that so basic? It's so simple. I mean, we teach our children this from from day one and we just don't outgrow this. Just turn away from doing evil and instead do good. Why? He tells us, for the Lord loves justice. Doing good is seen as doing justice. It's being fair. It's not showing partiality. It's treating all people equally, despite who they are, where they've come from, what they look like, what they've done. We treat everybody equally. It's standing for what is right, standing for what is true, standing for what is good, and standing against what is wrong, what is a lie, and what is bad. Again, it is those who don't yield to the temptation to resort to the evil tactics of the ungodly, but instead live consistently with the character of God who are promised that they'll be preserved forever. But look at the wicked. It says, even the children of the wicked will be cut off in verse 28. Just as there was a positive generational impact for the righteous, now we see that there's a negative generational impact for the wicked. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Have you guys seen those progressive insurance commercials where they try to prevent you from becoming your parents? Aren't those amazing? Those are so funny. If you haven't seen them, just go on YouTube and look them up. They are so funny. They're so relatable. But I love the end of it because even progressive is going to admit like you're going to become your parents. The the end of it says this on all, all those commercials. They say, progressive can't protect you from becoming your parents, but here's what we can do. Like the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. You're going to grow up and young people, listen, you're looking at your parents right now and you're saying, I'll never be like my dad. I'll never say that. I'll never do that. The second you have kids, you're going to say something and you're going to go, oh my gosh, I'm my dad or I'm my mom. I've become them and it will be a midlife crisis for you. (laughs) But time will continue to go on and all of a sudden you'll realize, man, my parents actually had a lot figured out. There was a lot of wisdom there and maybe it's not so bad that I'm becoming sort of like my parents, especially if your parents love Jesus. In Psalm 37, 30 through 31, we read, The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. This is so important because it reveals where the righteous person gets their wisdom and where they get their understanding of justice. He tells us, he says, The law of his God is in his heart. Guys, we have to be people of this book. This is one of the most important lessons we learn through the Psalter. We have to be people of this book. We have to delight in God's word. We have to read God's word. We have to study God's word. We have to meditate on God's word. 
Now, you know as well as I do that there is a lot of talk about justice these days. Reproductive justice, social justice, racial justice, economic justice, environmental justice, 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 which is good to some extent. We should rejoice that so many people in culture care about the concept of justice. But what you'll find, of course, is that not everyone's definition of justice is the same. People have competing visions of what what actually constitutes justice. So the question is, where do we actually come face-to-face with authentic and true and eternal justice? Where do we learn what justice actually is? Answer, the Word of God. The Word of God. So we have to be people who are consuming God's Word. Final section, God will help the righteous in verses 32 through 40. David says in verse 32, the wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. Here we see how serious the oppression of the righteous is in Psalm 37. People's lives were actually in danger. Now we should not think in verse 32 that what David's describing is sort of a a situation in Israel where there's like roving bands of, uh, you know, kind of Taliban in Israel that are going around in pickup trucks, trying to circle up and round up the righteous to kill them. What what David's describing, as we see in verse 33, is that the wicked are in seats of power and authority in Israel at this time. And they're using that to oppress the weak and the vulnerable and the righteous. So they're judges and they're magistrates and they're working in justice. But he says, God will help the righteous in verse 33. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. You can fret and you can fail to trust God in places where the wicked have infiltrated seats of power and authority. Places like law courts, schools and universities, businesses or religious institutions. And you can fret and you can worry just as much in a situation like that as you can where the, where the wicked do drive around with machine guns and round up the righteous. But David reminds us that the Lord will not abandon him to his power. So again, we're called to patiently wait. But notice, not just wait, to wait and keep his way, to wait and live righteously. Look at verse 34. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. How does David know? Because he's seen it firsthand. Look at verse 35. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree. But he passed away and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. So there's this picture of this wicked, ruthless person who sort of presents himself like this flourishing tree. This is a contrast to Psalm 1-3. Remember where David writes there that the righteous man is the one who's a tree? He's like a tree planted by streams of water. It yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So sometimes the blessing on those who do not trust in Jesus is so um, pronounced that it almost gives the appearance that they are being blessed by the Lord. They're not just grass that's green. They're like a tree that's spreading itself and flourishing. And you can look at that and go, oh my gosh, it's almost like these people are being blessed by God in their sin. But David says, listen, I've seen situations like that before. 
I've seen it. And ultimately, it doesn't work out. David, as an older man, could call the young guys to the table and say, hey guys, when I was a teenager, there was a guy named Goliath. He was nine feet tall. He was a champion of the Philistines. He had it all. Okay, he was powerful and he was feared and he was in control and the Philistines had everything and we were on the run. And guess what? I saw that giant fall and he died on the battlefield. He was struck down. David could say, you know, when I was a little older, I was running from Saul and I needed help. Me and my men, we were in a desperate situation and we had no resources of our own and we found a rich man named Nabal and his wife, Abigail, greeted us. And we thought that this rich man who had all of this stuff could help us and just give us a little bit of food. And instead he mocked us and he mocked our God and he turned against us. And he had this pretty wife. He had all this wealth and he had all of this success. And guess what? He was a total fool. In fact, that's what his name means. Nabal means fool. This guy's parents really had high hopes for him. What should we name him? But David says, listen, I'm telling you, young guys, he mistreated me. He should have been generous. He should have been helpful. He mistreated me. He spoke out against my God. And 10 days later, the Lord struck him down. So David says, I've seen it, but he passed away. He passed away. God will help the righteous. Well, 39 and 40 are a beautiful conclusion to the psalm. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. The righteous experience God's salvation, God's faithfulness, God's deliverance, because it comes from him. And that's good news. You can't mess it up. I can't mess it up. It comes from him. He gives it to us. He's the one who delivers them from the wicked. And the psalm ends with the great reason why, because they take refuge in him. God is faithful. God delivers. God saves his people because they trust him. They look to him to be saved. Hebrews eleven six reminds us, without faith, it is impossible to please him. If we bring anything else to God and say, this is how I'm going to earn your favor, God looks at us and says, I don't need anything. None of that makes me happy. What pleases him, what makes him happy is us coming before the Lord in truth and in humility and saying, I am bankrupt without you. I am hopeless without you. Will you help me? And God gets a big smile on his face and he says, absolutely, I'll help you. I'm here. Sometimes people say God helps those who, helps them, who help themselves. And that's quite misleading. It's more accurate to say God helps those who realize they can't help themselves. That's what we see from Genesis to Revelation. God helps those who acknowledge that they need God's help. They take refuge in him. And this family is why the gospel is such good news. Sure, I know among our congregation, we have a few A-type personalities here. People who can roll up their sleeves and get it done. People who can produce a lot, who, who do have some things to bring to the table personality-wise or resources or otherwise. And you probably could do a fair amount of helping yourself if that's all that it took for God to then finally meet you in the middle and say, I'll help you the rest of the way. But what about the rest of us? 
What about all the people who have nothing to bring to the table? They'd be completely hopeless. What about the single parent who's giving everything she has right now and cannot muster up anything else? What about the young person who struggles every day with anxiety and depression and feels like they have no resources to draw on? What about the sinner who realizes that they're guilty before a holy God and has nothing that they can say to justify their wrongs? Family, the great news of the gospel is that God helps people just like that. God looks at all of us and he says, if you'll humble yourself, if you'll look to me, if you'll turn to me, if you'll take refuge in me, I'll save you. I'll deliver you. I'll be faithful to you. I'll hold you to the very end. Amen. Let's pray.